Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining in today, which is February 15th, 2017. For those of you who have been affected by autism, whether it's your own child or you have friends that that have an autistic child, we have an amazing show for you today. We have with us Kent Heckenlively, and he is not only a science teacher and an attorney, but he's also the founding contributing editor of The Age of Autism. And we're going to be discussing his latest book, which is called Inoculated, How Science Lost Its Soul in Autism. And it's really a compelling chronicle that poses a lot of questions about the autism epidemic. And he's gone to a great deal of, um, he's gone through a lot of research And he asks questions relative to the courageous scientists and why didn't they follow the evidence that they basically uncovered. So um, (laughs) it's a complicated – autism can be very complicated in terms of the political and the medical ramifications, and we will get into that today. So let me bring him onto our show now. Hello, Kent. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Denise. I'm really happy to be here. I always ask my guests, how did you get on the path that you're on today outside of the autism uh, research, et cetera? Well, I, I got into this autism world uh, through my daughter, who was diagnosed with a seizure disorder at about 10 months and then at the age of three was diagnosed with autism. Now, at the time, I had heard that there might be a link between vaccines and autism, and I really didn't give it any credence. I I think I'm probably like a lot of your listeners. I, I just thought, hey, something happened. It was probably genetic. I don't need to worry you know, I I couldn't have done anything about it. It was sort of, you know, fate, for lack of a better word of saying it. And then along came my son. And one of the things that we did when my daughter went off of breast milk was we gave her a regular cow's milk-based formula. And um, then we discovered that she had a milk allergy probably when she was about two years old. So then what happened when my son came along is when he went off of breast milk, we put him on a hypoallergenic milk formula until he was about 15 months old because, you know, it gets, it's kind of expensive. So I actually take my son to his 18 month checkup 
And because I'd given the pediatrician hell because I thought she had missed something in my daughter's six-month checkup, my son underwent a full developmental checkup, passed with flying colors. He had 15, 20 words, looking appropriately, everything great, gets his shots, we leave. Within three days, my wife says to me, Ben has stopped talking, and he started pounding his head on the floor. Now, my wife is a speech therapist, and she's worked for now over 25 years in a hospital, and she's a trained observer. And so I suddenly thought, oh, my God, what's happened to Ben in the past three days? And then suddenly it came to me, oh, my God, the shots. Um, This crazy theory that I hadn't given any credence to, you know, was demonstrated in front of my eyes. Now, what really sealed the deal for me is that I started reading everything I could immediately, and I ran across the gluten casein-free diet. And so that was probably on day five or six of my son not speaking. I put him on that immediately, as well as my daughter. And after 12 days, my son said his first word again. And it was as if I caught him as he was falling into the abyss of autism. My wife always says that it seems like it took him about a year to catch up in language with his peers. It took him about two years for his sensory problems to go away. But he um, entered kindergarten as a normally developing five-year-old. And, you know, he's 16 years old now. He's got his driver's license. He's a great student. He's a great athlete. Um, And my daughter, who um, is now 18 years old, can't speak, wears diapers, and needs help with the most basic necessities of life. Now, I feel that the diet allowed me to interrupt some process that would have resulted in very severe autism for my son. Now, because I started the diet much later for my daughter, um, it didn't have that same effect. I am still convinced, though, that these kids with autism, even like my daughter, who seem you know, profoundly um, damaged, I think are in there almost like stroke patients are in there. So um, I, I say I've had the, the quickest autism recovery mm-hmm. and the longest autism recovery with my kids. So, you know, I, it's sort of like I, I live the American dream and the American nightmare, sometimes almost at the same moment with my kids. Mm. That's just quite a story. The um, yes. Obviously, the gluten casein diet is instrumental with autism kids, I would assume. Have you found any further research on it? You know, this is just sort of my own sort of observations after years of this. It seems Mm -hmm. that the quicker you institute the gluten casein-free diet after the uh, the problems arise, the better the result. And I think it also probably depends on how old they are. Um, I've run across some really interesting theories, actually, out of Southern California. Um, A researcher, Dr. Robert Navio at the University of California, San Diego, and his theory is something called the cell danger response, which is when the cell thinks that there's some danger in the body, and it can be chemical, biological, viral, that the cells respond by cutting off communication. And then kind of the cells get stuck not communicating with each other. He's been quoted as saying that when cells stop communicating with each other, children stop talking. Well, he's been able to um, quantify how the cells are not talking to each other um, by looking at metabolites, which are 
signaling molecules that you can find in urine and, and use a mass spectrometer to find. And he's in animal studies, he's been able to use a very old drug called Suramin, which is, um, was used to treat African sleeping sickness. And he's reversed it in three different animal models, um, animals who had a human age equivalent of 30 years old. Um, he's done a, a small human trial, and the results haven't been um, uh, released publicly, but you know we kind of hear rumors that the results have been spectacular. And so um, we're hopeful that if we can get to the truth of what's gone on with autism, that maybe these vaccines have certain components that in certain individuals will cause their cells to shut down communication, then we're going to be on the road to really within a couple of years having very effective treatments, if not outright cures for this, because the trouble in autism has always been, what are you actually monitoring? And so if we can find that these signaling molecules are abnormal, well, we just have to get cells communicating well and, and the body will repair itself. You're capable of doing that. Yeah. Now, when we talk about your book, Inoculated, mm-hmm. when did you start um, doing your research? And I'm well, not talking a, about your children, really, about your kids, yeah. but um, outside well, of that. Well, well, for, for your listeners, what they should know is that in um, the summer of 2014, a senior scientist at the Centers for Disease Control, Dr. William Thompson, became a whistleblower for the federal government, meaning he applied for and was granted federal whistleblower protection. He turned over more than 10,000 documents to Congress, alleging a cover-up of information in the government's own study on whether earlier administration of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine was linked to increased rates of autism. So let me explain exactly what was going on at that time and why there really was a perfect opportunity to do a good study to see if the claims made by Dr. Andrew Wakefield, a British researcher, that MMR could be linked to autism were true. So Mm -hmm. in the United States in the late 1990s, early 2000s, MMR shots were recommended for kids 36 months and older, okay? So you had a great data set of all these kids who got the MMR shot at 36 months, right? And then Mm -hmm. the recommendation from the CDC changed such that you could get it at, um, you know, 24 months, 12 months, 18 months. So you had one group that got it at 36 months, and then you had another group that were getting it significantly earlier. Really nice data set. And so the CDC... um, came up with a research plan. And and if you know much about science, the idea when you're doing research is you say, okay, if I'm going to investigate this question, I have to have a research plan and I follow that research plan. And if for some reason I don't, I have to disclose that because that's what science is. Science should be transparent, open. Everybody can understand it. Everybody has access to the data. Well, what happened was the CDC did this research, and they immediately found out, this was probably 2002, 2003, that earlier administration of the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine was linked to increased rates of autism. And they Mm. found it specifically with two different groups. 
African-American males had an increased rate of autism, I think it was about 3.46. And just so your listeners know, um, anything above 2.0 is kind of proof of causation in a legal case. So we have this group of African-American males who get the MMR shot earlier, definitely linked to increased rates of autism. There was another group that they called isolated autism, which will probably strike your listeners as really a bizarre term, something they've never heard before, and there's a reason, and that's because the CDC made it up. Isolated autism is what the rest of the sane world would call a normally developing child. They had no other conditions, and that was about 2.4-fold increase. So you had these two groups that were showing increase of rates of autism, based upon earlier administration of the MMR vaccine. So they decided to hide that information by taking out a whole bunch of the kids so that the odds ratio dropped. So it got to about 1.8 or 1.5. So they could say, well, you know, it's both below proof and well, it's, you know, it's interesting, but doesn't seem like it's real. Um, But I'd like to go one step further because even though these results were so devastating, it wasn't even a really well-designed scientific experiment. Okay. Because remember, what they're, what they're doing is they're, they're taking information from kids who got the MMR shot at 36 months, and they're taking information from kids who got it before 36 months. It's a little like studying one group of smokers who smoke one pack of cigarettes a day and another group that smokes two packs of cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. If you want to do a really good study, you have to have a group who don't smoke. So (laughs) they never had the control group of those kids who didn't get the MMR shot. So um, even though it was a really solid scientific study, it still was extremely disturbing. Um, The scientist, Dr. William Thompson at the time was very troubled by these findings. He even went so far as to break the chain of command and write a letter directly to the head of the CDC, Dr. Julie Gerberding, saying these results are troubling. They must be disclosed. He wasn't um, patted on the back for that. In fact, he was sanctioned for breaking the chain of command and told to get counseling for his anger issues over his claims that the CDC scientists weren't concerned about vaccine safety. And he actually just kind of seemed like he sat and stewed for about eight to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And then finally, you know, his conscience got the better of him. And I really wish that he had come out, um, you know, 2003, 2004, because what happened was they used the information from that phony study. Um, They did the same thing by throwing away a lot of the data when they looked at the question of mercury in vaccines and autism. And they used the results from these two phony studies to commit the government in 2004 not to spend any more federal dollars investigating the question of vaccines and autism. So when people come around and say, well, the federal government hasn't found any link between vaccines and autism. Well, they haven't spent any money on it in the past 13 years. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, as a lawyer, we'd always joke about, you know, the guy who uh, kills his parents and then throws himself on the mercy of the court by claiming he's an orphan. Mm-hmm. It, 
it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like if you if you don't go looking for it, you can't say, hey, I didn't find it, and and True. be believed. So, um, you know, I know a lot of people that this will strike them as speculative and everything, but what I say to them is, you know, read my book and you'll see that actually I base my book on documents that I received from Congress. I mean, I had to apply to Congress to to get access to these whistleblower documents. I was granted them. And then I write about them and I quote from them extensively. And what the picture they paint is of a small group of scientists at the top of the CDC who felt that any mention of problems with vaccines could not be allowed to happen um, because the public couldn't deal with it. And and I just think that is, that's profoundly evil. It's profoundly Mm -hmm. anti-science and I really wish I could use um, less inflammatory words, but I, I consider that a crime against humanity, especially as there have been more than a million children diagnosed with autism since those scientists decided not to tell the truth. Well, I'm sure it goes deeper than that mm-hmm. because of the um, pharmaceutical companies. And yeah, and- and it was Reagan that signed a bill, correct? Where yeah, the so, pharmaceutical you know, companies wouldn't incur any legal damage? Yeah, and, it, and I tell you, it's really interesting because what I do in my book is, you know, and I think of myself as, as an educator and as an attorney. And I, I always remember this professor in law school who said that at the end of a well-presented case, the audience shouldn't feel they've been harangued. They should feel they've been educated. And so Mm -hmm. I really think about it in terms of educating people. So what I did was I went back into the history of how this came to happen. And so uh, in 1986, uh, Reagan signed something called the National Childhood Vaccine Injury Act. Okay. And it removed vaccines from the regular civil court system and put it in this thing called the vaccine court. Now, this isn't a court you would want to be in front of for anything. And let me tell you why you wouldn't want to be in front of them. So let's take a typical consumer product. Let's say you're making toast tomorrow morning. Your toaster catches fire and burns down half your kitchen. Okay, you sue the manufacturer of the toaster. Um, They have to disclose to you all the complaints they've gotten about toasters catching fire You can uh, depose all of their engineers who designed the thing, and you can get information about whether it's a defective product, right? And we all understand that that's how consumer protection works. You know, we have a free and open flow of information. Nothing even remotely like that exists in vaccine court. What they do is um, you cannot sue the manufacturer. You cannot compel any documents. They just have this table of cases, and you have to go off of that, or, or you have to go and try and prove that the, this vaccine or this group of vaccines caused this problem. And it's not a friendly process. And what would probably shock your listeners is to find that even though I say there are so many problems with this, um, the federal government has paid out more than $3.2 billion in vaccine injury claims for children who've been injured by vaccines. Now, one of the really evil things that they do to many of the parents who receive recoveries 
is they say, well, we're going to give you this money, but we, you have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And you find yourself going, well, wait a minute. I'm not actually suing the company. I'm suing the government to get me this money from this fund. And my own government is telling me I can't say what happened to my child. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, find that profoundly, I find that profoundly evil. It's and you know, one of the things that I also one of the other things that I did in the book was, you know, I really wanted to get to every um, part of this vaccine issue. And so I, I'm, I've really been happy that a lot of people have said, God, if I didn't know anything about the autism vaccine issue, your book is a great place to start to lay out the issues. So mm-hmm. one of the things that I did was I contacted one of the judges of this vaccine court, a retired judge of the vaccine court, and I interviewed him. And it was really interesting because I've heard a lot of different stories about the vaccine court. And so, you know, at one point I said, you know, um, I've heard these stories and, and read reports that the vaccine court has actually compensated children for the vaccines causing autism. And I just, I'd like to get your comment on that. And so he says to me, he says, no, he says, that's absolutely the wrong way to say it. And so, you know, being an attorney, you always listen. I'm like, well, what would be the right way to say it? (laughs) And he said, from the very beginning, we have compensated when vaccines have caused encephalopathy, which is a swelling of the brain. And we have always since the very beginning, said that autism may be the result of uh, an encephalopathy. So we compensated that as a damage from the encephalopathy. And so, you know, my brain is spinning so fast. So I'm like, wait a minute. So you're not saying that vaccines cause autism. You're saying you're really comfortable saying vaccines cause encephalopathy and the encephalopathy causes autism and you've paid for for those damages. He goes, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. And I'm like, mm-hmm. well, geez, to the average American who's not, you know, you know, uh, privy to theirs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it, I'm sorry. It's vaccines cause autism. Pretty simple. A equals B equals C. So. The other person I interviewed who was really interesting was a professor at Stanford, a law professor at Stanford Law School. And she was one of the few academics who'd actually studied the vaccine court. And it was interesting because she was studying it to see if the vaccine court provided a good model for other, you know, uh, type of types of courts, other alternative dispute resolution forms. And so she says, okay, so the people who are working in the vaccine court don't think it's working. The parents, all these problems, you know, because it was supposed to speed recovery to afflicted families so they didn't have to deal, you know, with, you know, first of all, their injured child and the legal system. And she found that it takes much longer than the legal system. Um, and it's, it doesn't remove the acrimony and nobody thinks that this court should serve as a model for any other court. So it was really interesting to, to, you know, be marching down the line of questions of the Stanford law professor. And, you know, you say to her, okay, so is the court working as intended? No. Do those running the court think it's working correctly? 
No. Do the parents think it's working correctly? No. Well, do you think the court should be abolished and we should just throw vaccines back into the regular civil court system? Well, I don't feel qualified to say that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. well, you're a Stanford law professor, for God's sakes. If you don't have Mm -hmm. an opinion on this, who does? Mm -hmm. Well, doesn't want to get into any libel situations, I'm sure. (laughs) But it's funny because, I mean, you think of of law professors as being, you know, voices of truth, voices Mm -hmm. of reason, you know, independent voices. And I keep finding that these people, you know, are just, they're scared about this issue. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sorry, it it has never been part of my education that, you know, I'm told that professors will tell you the truth, you know, to a certain point, and then, defer to tell you the truth. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, you know, this is terrifying when people don't feel that they can express an opinion. Cause I was thinking to myself, okay, look, I, I'm, I'm going as far as I can. I mean, I'm talking to the judge who works in the court. I'm talking to an academic who's studied the court. If there's anybody who's going to tell me, you know, Oh, Kent, you're wrong. Um, it would be these guys. And I, I was really looking for, tell me, tell me that this thing works. And and they mm-hmm. couldn't tell me that it worked, but it they were afraid yeah. to say, stop it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So follow the money. I really think it's something different than just follow the money. Um, I, and, and what was interesting to me was mm-hmm. to, and this is this is why I really think that eventually we're going to win this fight, and I think it's why people like the whistleblower, Dr. William Thompson, are going to become more um, uh, more common than less common. Is when I was looked at the research plans that the CDC came up with for the MMR question, and actually to look at mercury in vaccines, they were really good, solid um, research plans. But when they got the data back, that's when they had to change things. That's when they had to conceal data. And so mm-hmm. I think to myself, mm-hmm. there's this instability in the system because mm-hmm. every, every medical student, every science student going through the system is told that the data is the data and that you know, there's the Hippocratic Oath. You, you tell the truth. I mean, it's like in law, you know, when somebody stands up in court, you swear to God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so they're teaching all of these students to tell the truth. And then there is this monstrous lie at the center of medical practice. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think that sets up, a, you know, this insane instability in the system that is going to cause it to collapse. Yeah, I mean, time will tell. We'll see. Let's yeah. uh, let's talk about the possible reasons that vaccines may cause injury uh, for listeners who really um, haven't delved into this. Because you know, I mean, most of our listeners, a vaccine is a vaccine. What's the difference? Right. Why, why, can they be, well, why can they be harmful? Well, you know, what I really like to do is I really like to keep my discussions 
to things that everybody agrees on. So mm-hmm. let's talk about how your typical vaccine is made. So if anybody's okay. listening who, who knows anything about vaccines, they'll know I'm, I'm, I'm telling you the way it is. So what you do is you isolate a virus from a human host, okay? Understood. Mm-hmm. The typical way that they are weakening that human virus is by passaging it through animal tissue. The idea being that when you put a virus through different species, what happens is you either create something really lethal or you create something that's more benign, okay? So mm-hmm. you wait till you get that thing that's more benign, and then you re-inject it into the human being, and hopefully you pro- provoke a mild immune response, which will then work for when they um, uh, encounter a related virus, the, the one that's more virulent. The pr- there are a number of problems with that scenario, though, because when you put a human virus through different animal species, you might be picking up other viruses. And so you're injecting the weakened human virus, but you might also be introducing a bunch of animal viruses. It was really interesting. I had a conversation with one of the founding fathers of human retrovirology, a guy named uh, Dr. Frank Rossetti, who actually edited my first book, Plague. And he he, I asked him about this, and, and I said, you know, Frank, I just don't understand it. I, I understand you want to weaken a virus, but you're putting it through animals, and then you're reinjecting it into human beings. How do you know that you're not getting something from the animal back? Mm-hmm, and he said mm-hmm. that he had asked that same question when he was a young man, and he was told the human body can handle any animal virus. And he said, you know, it, he accepted it as a young man. But as an older man, he just saw the monumental arrogance of that statement. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I pivot from there to um, in the summer of 2011, I worked um, at Lawrence Livermore Labs um, in a virus lab. There's a thing called wow. the Future Research Academy. Yeah. And so it was really interesting because one of the things that they did for all of us science teachers is they – one afternoon they put on sort of like a, you know, song and dance about all the wonderful things that they do at Lawrence Livermore labs. And one of the things that they talked about is they talked about how they um, uh, had some new tests to look at what material is in consumer products, specifically vaccines. And one of the things that they looked at was this, uh, the vaccine for the Rotatech virus, which is a virus which causes disease normally in the diarrhea normally in the third world. And and it can be very serious, you know, when kids um, in these third world nations um, get it. So Mm -hmm. they're looking at the Rotatech vaccine and he says, you know, we found that there was an unsuspected pig virus in the vaccine we were giving people. And so, because it was grown in pig tissue, because it's also with viruses, you know, they often need a medium to grow in. So sometimes, you know, that will be animal tissue. So you can use animal tissue to weaken it or to help grow it. So, you know, I, here I am among a bunch of science teachers, and I'm like, oh, my God, he's speech, speaking my language. And here I am at one of our premier national labs. 
I just got to keep asking. I got to ask a couple questions here. So <laughs> I raised, I raised my hand. And I, and it, the, the guy was Dr. Paul Jackson, who's done some great work on antibiotics. And, and I said, Dr. Jackson, um, you mentioned that I, I'm really interested in that. Could you tell me how much more pig virus you found in the vaccine rather than the target virus you were hoping to inject in people? And he says, <laughs> oh, yeah, simple, right, simple question. And, and he goes, oh, well, we found about 10 times more pig virus than the virus we were actually hoping to give people. I'm thinking like 10 to one. Okay. Hell, oh, we never knew there's pig viruses in it. So I, I raised my hand again. I said, Dr. Jackson, I understand you only took the Rotatech virus vaccine off of the market for about two weeks. But as I understand it, long-term viral exposure um, can lead to cancer in like, you know, 20, 30 years. Did you do any studies to show whether this pig virus might be causing cancer later on? And he goes, no, we didn't do it. Pro- we probably should. <laughs> and I'm, oh, my I'm like, gosh. Oh, my. Yeah, you know, and he, he kind of like, he's like, yeah, that, that would be a, a good way to go about it. And I was thinking, like, mm-hmm. why is it? You know, here, I, I, I mean, the, the thing that I, I keep thinking is, you know, if I'm asking questions about things people have already figured out, mm-hmm. well, I'll let them tell me where I'm wrong. But it's so shocking to me when I I'm asking what I think are reasonable questions that should have been asked and answered. And people are saying, yeah, that's a really good question. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, and I'm thinking, so you're giving kid, people, they think they're protecting their kids from this virus that's going to cause diarrhea and you're giving them 10 times more of this pig virus that we haven't even studied. <laughs> Does anything sound wrong in this scenario? Gee. How, how many years do they actually spend research in um, vaccines before they come to market? Well, one of the, the big problems, and this will sound so simple to your listeners, and, and they may hear this and, and it may just, you know, they may not really get it. So let me say it one or two times. Okay. The normal amount of time that they study vaccine side effects is six to eight weeks. Oh, the dear. normal amount of time that they study vaccine side effects are six to eight weeks. Anything beyond that is looked upon as not being related to the vaccine. Now, one of the really terrible things about vaccines is they are listed not as a pharmaceutical, but as a, quote, public health measure. Let me explain why that's different. Mm -hmm. A typical drug that goes onto the market, the manufacturer has to do long-term safety studies. Okay. Correct. So they have to have a group that study that takes it and they have to have a group that doesn't. Okay. And mm-hmm. that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of how Expensive. things like Vioxx Expensive. got to, that's how th- things like Vioxx got taken off the market because mm-hmm. they were looking at the death rates of people who took Vioxx versus those who didn't. Okay. Nothing even remotely similar happens with vaccines. There is no long term safety studies 
no long-term safety studies of MMR versus no MMR, no long-term safety studies of the current vaccine schedule, which is 49 vaccines before the age of five versus a child who gets no vaccines to the age of five. So this really is a massive uncontrolled experiment on the human population. And, you know, the rate of autism used to be one in 10,000 in the 1980s. It's one in 50 right now. I think that's a conservative estimate. Um, There's a researcher at MIT, Dr. Stephanie Seneff, who says that if current rates continue by 2030, one in two children will have autism. Now, I don't understand how we survive as a country with those numbers. I don't understand how we survive as a species with those numbers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I I am all about people challenging me. um, And I say, look, I really think the vaccines are involved. But if I'm wrong, prove me wrong. Tell me Tell me this isn't happening or show me how to fix this. The fact that my daughter has gone from the age of three to 18 with absolutely not a single medical advance to improve her life is shocking to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I I mean, I, I jokingly say I could just as easily say my daughter is possessed by evil spirits for mm-hmm. all of the help that modern medicine has given us. Oh, catastrophic. <laughs> yeah. But, but here's the, the, the point I want to get across is I understand that there's a lot of darkness in the story, but mm-hmm. I believe mm-hmm. that if we tell the truth, that we can find an answer. And I think that what Robert Navio has at UC San Diego could be, absolutely you know world changing it's world changing what he's seen in his animal studies um i think it's going to be world changing what happens with these kids i've actually had dinner with robert navio and talked to him about his research and he has told me that and what's really interesting about it is that the drug it's infused and it seems to last about six to eight weeks Um, in the system, and he actually says that, and and the dosage is really low. I mean, it's, I think, about a tenth of what they give it normally for um, African sleeping sickness, which is what it was developed for. And, you know, I've had Robert Navio actually tell me that he thinks that somebody like my daughter would probably only need to get about two years' worth of infusions. So every two months, that's 12 infusions, Mm-hmm. And she would likely end up very close to normal. Um, and, and, you know, that is just such a radical change. And, and that's why, you know, I'm so passionate about this because, um, you know, I believe that, you know, we can solve this thing. I understand mm-hmm. all of the pain that it's caused. Uh, you know, I, I get all that. I, I get that liability is huge and everything, but, you know, this is, I really think that this is about the fate of the human race that we're talking about. And the thing that's so dramatic to me is I think that this problem is so easily solved 
if we confront some unpleasant truths and think mm-hmm. about it, I mean, mm-hmm. if people listen to the story that I'm telling, and, you know, that's why I encourage people to read my book, buy my book, to see, see if I'm telling the truth. I mean, I have over 450 footnotes in the thing, so it tells you the sources to go to to tell you that I'm, I'm telling the truth about this. But think about this. If we honestly confront what's going on with autism, we can bring these kids back um, and I also think that we will get an incredible insight into things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So think about this. We help the kids, and we also ensure that in our old age, we're going to have a vital, active elderly years. We're not going to be having these dementias because it's probably something similar that's going on in Alzheimer's and these dementias, which is for some reason the cells are not communicating the way they're supposed Mm -hmm. to. And, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe that's toxic exposure over a lifetime. Maybe that's the fact that they've got, you know, unresolved chronic viral infections that as their immune system starts to fail, it gets misguided. And Mm -hmm. we just need to make sure that, you know, the cells are talking to each other. And, you know, I, I, I honestly say I, I feel like sometimes this whole autism thing is a microcosm of our society. And, you know, we've got great parts of our society that aren't talking to each other and, um, you know, consider the other side the enemy. And, you know, God, we, we just got to talk to get get our bodies talking to itself the right way and, and you know, get people talking to each other the right way and, um, you know, move away from this uh, theory that, uh, you know, to talk about – Autism and vaccines is, you know, going to bring about the end of civilization. The research that Robert Navio is doing in San Diego? Yes. When would that become available to the public, or if ever? Well, he's, he's published three, um, three articles on his um, mouse studies. So... Mm-hmm. Um, even for mice who had fragile X syndrome, which is called, sometimes called genetic autism, I think it's a little bit different, but I understand why people might group it together. Um, and, you know, he's working on things like chronic fatigue syndrome, which I think is a very similar presentation, probably the cells not communicating to each other in adults. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, that was basically my first book, Plague, that I wrote with Dr. Judy Mikovits, uh, 20-year government scientist and head of the lab of antiviral drug drug mechanisms at the National Cancer Institute. And her idea was that, you know, a retrovirus was behind that. So, and uh, strangely enough, it was a, uh, it was a virus that had come from mice. And in that, it was really interesting because, you know, chronic fatigue syndrome is like autism, one of these um, maligned diseases. And what was really interesting to me in my investigation in that book is to find that the first outbreak of chronic fatigue syndrome happened at Los Angeles County General Hospital in 1934 and 1935 among 198 doctors and nurses mm. in the middle of a polio ep- in the middle of a polio epidemic so strange because wow it's in the middle of a polio epidemic and we don't have any patients getting sick we have the doctors and nurses getting sick well did a little bit of more searching and I found out oh they got an early early polio vaccine, which was uh, grown in 
which was grown in mouse tissue. Uh. And, and they also got, I, I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's so ironic. They also got an accompanying immune booster because people knew that if you're going to challenge the immune system, you might want to have a booster. And that bu- booster was preserved with mercury. It was one of the mm-hmm. first uses of thimerosal. So it keeps coming back to the same thing of, you know, I think chemical exposures to things like mercury, I think also aluminum, and, you know, viruses. And, and you know, it may be, you know, some sort of combination, but maybe it's not necessarily all those things, except it's the body's response to it. You know, we all know that, you know, people are more sensitive to things. There's just genetic variation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, one person will die from a very small dose of arsenic and another person will require a very large dose, dark mm-hmm. dose of arsenic. But mm-hmm. if you keep giving arsenic to, to people, 100% of them will die. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. of it very much the same way with this toxic load we're giving to them with vaccines. So, I'd really like to see us figure out how we can eliminate the toxic burden and dose that we're giving people. But also if, you know, we have all these people who are sick now, I really think that we can recover them, but we got to tell the truth first. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. truth has to come first. You know, we have to go through this darkness before we get to the light. And so, Mm. you know, I'm, I'm trying to, uh, you know, shine a light on these dark places in uh, modern science. So where do we go from here? I know that well, um, you have a movement going on coming up in a few months, correct? And uh, the U.S. Capitol? Yeah, so I'm going to be speaking at the U.S. Capitol on March 31st oh, along with great. Robert Kennedy Jr. Um, and uh, one of the things that has been great is – there seems to be developing this very powerful bipartisan group um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, who are interested in kids' health. So um, Dr. Andy Wakefield and a number of other autism advocates met with pre- uh, presidential candidate Donald Trump um, in August 11th of 2016 at Kissimmee, Florida. They spent about 50 minutes with him. He took a copy of the documentary uh, vaxxed from cover-up to catastrophe, which is mm-hmm. about the case I write about. Um, mm-hmm. Trump promised to watch it and promised to have further meetings in the White House. Um, so he won, and then he appointed Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, to chair a committee on vaccine safety and scientific integrity. And then just today, Robert Kennedy, along with Robert De Niro, held a press conference at the National Press Center uh, in Washington, D.C., to announce the $100,000 um, vaccine by mercury challenge because Kennedy said he's been so tired of how um, journalists will say that uh, uh, they talk to the CDC and there is no link between mercury and autism, and he says, show me the study. They never do. Um, De Niro and Kennedy presented to the group at the National Press Club this morning 480 studies which showed a link between mercury and neurodevelopmental problems, and I think it was 81 studies 
that showed a link specifically between mercury and autism. And so he Mm. said, look, I have an international panel of well-respected scientists, and if you will present me one single study that shows me that giving mercury to children does not lead to problems, I will give you (laughs) $100,000. That's great. That's wonderful. Uh, Yeah. So, so, So we're really getting aggressive. And, um, we, we, and it matters, it really does matter who's in charge. I mean, you know, in 2008, we met with every leading presidential candidate. We met with Hillary Clinton. We met with John McCain. We met with president Obama. President Obama actually promised us an autism czar. Well, his eight years came and went and we got no autism czar. Mm -hmm. So this is not a Republican issue. It's not a Democratic issue. There's no no Republican autism or Democratic autism. They're just sick kids. And so Mm -hmm. let's put Mm -hmm. aside, let's put aside all the other stuff and let's concentrate on saving our children and saving the human race. And then let's bitch about the other things. I'm fine with that. (laughs) Let's fix our kids first. You know, Uh. Well, it's been a wonderful interview with you. We're running out of time. Would you let our listeners know where they can purchase your book? Um, let them know about your website. And if anybody, uh, are you inviting people to the U.S. Capitol for your speech? I, or I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm inviting you to hear me on the steps of the United States Capitol because I'm worried that I'm just going to be talking to a bunch of pigeons there. <laughs> okay, so, so and then that'll um, be on March you, 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 March thirty first, two thousand seventeen. What day is yeah, that? So, is that Saturday? Uh it, it it is a Friday. It's a Friday, okay. Yeah, so one one to four. One to four. Um, and okay, so, wonderful. So there's going to be um so you can buy my book on Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got a website, www.inoculated.org, inoculated with one end, and there's uh, ways to communicate with me through there. Thank you so much, Kent Heck and Lively. You've been just wonderful. And continue the fight. I've tried to fight. be a heck of a lively guest. <laughs> continue the fight. We're all backing you and um, that we get something done. Oh, and you can also read me on the Bolin Report. I usually write a column a week on the Bolin Report. So that's www.bolinreport.com. Oh, great. Thanks for that. Well, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that wraps up our show for today. Please join us again next Wednesday for another really great and informative show. We have the best guests, just the best. Until then, be happy, be well. Bye-bye for now. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at KnowledgeWorksPub.com. Be sure to visit GotCancerNowWhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer, Now What?